Chapter Twenty of Under Wellington's Command by G. Henty. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Charles Sapp. Under Wellington's Command by G. Henty. Chapter Twenty. Salamanca. She is a lucky girl, Terence. Ryan said as they quitted the shop. She will be the envy of all the peasant girls in the neighborhood when she goes to church in all that finery to be married to her muleteer. It has only cost about twenty pounds, and I value my freedom at a very much higher price than that, Dick. If I had not escaped, I should not have been in that affair with Morath that got me my promotion, and at the present time should be in some prison in France. You would not have got your majority, I grant, Terence, but wherever they shut you up, it is morally certain that you would have been long out of it long before this. I don't think anything less than being chained hand and foot and kept in an underground dungeon would suffice to hold you. I hope I shall never have to try that experiment, Dicky. Terence laughed. And now, I think you had better go into this hotel and order lunch for us both. It is just as well not to attract attention by two of us riding to that lane. We have not done with Marmont yet and it may be that the French will be masters of Salamanca again before long, and it is just as well not to get the old man or the girl talked about. I will leave my horse here, too. See that both of them get a good feed. They have not had over much since we crossed the equator. As there were a good many British officers in the town, little special attention was given to Terence as he walked along through the street, which was gay with flags. When he reached the house in the lane, the old man was standing at the door. Nita is in now, signor. She has not told me why you wanted to see her. She said it was better that she should not do so, but she thought she knew who it was. The girl clapped her hands as he entered the room to which the old man pointed. Then it is you, signor colonel. I wondered when we heard the English were coming if you would be with them. Of course I heard from Garcia that you were gone safely on board a ship at Cadiz. Then I wondered whether, if you did come here, you would remember me. Then it was very bad of you, Nita. You ought to have been quite sure that I should remember you. If I had not done so, I should have been an ungrateful rascal, and should have deserved to die in the next French prison I got into. How well you speak Spanish now, senor! Yes, that was principally due to Garcia, but partly from having been in Spain for six weeks last autumn. I was with Morass, and we gave the French a regular scare. Then it was you, senor! We heard that an English officer was in command of the troops who cut all the roads and took numbers of French prisoners and defeated five thousand of their troops and, as they said, nearly captured Valladolid and Burgos. That was an exaggeration, Nita. Still, we managed to do them a good deal of damage and kept the French in this part of the country pretty busy. And now, Nita, I have come to fulfill my promise, and he handed her the box in which the jeweler had packed up his purchases. These are for your wedding, Nita, and if it comes off while we are in this part of the country, I shall come and dance at it. The girl uttered cries of delight as she opened parcel after parcel. Oh, senor, it is too much, too much altogether, she cried as she laid them all out on the table before her. Not a bit of it, Terence said, but for you I should be in prison now, if they had been ten times as many and ten times as costly. I should still have felt your debtor all my life. And where is Garcia now? 
he has gone to join murillo she said he always said that as soon as the english came to our help he should go out so six weeks ago he sold all his mules and bought a gun and went off i am sorry not to have seen him terence said and now nita when he returns you are to give him this little box it contains a present to help you both start housekeeping in good style you see that i have put your name and his both on it no one can say what may happen in war remember that this is your joint property and if by ill fortune he should not come back again then it becomes yours oh signor you are altogether too good oh i am a lucky girl i am sure that no maid ever went to church before with such splendid ornaments how envious all the girls will be of me i expect the men will be equally envious of garcia nita now if you will take my advice you will not show these things to any one at present but will hide them in the box in some very safe place until you are quite sure that the french will never come back again if your neighbor saw them some ill-natured person might tell the french that you had received them from an english officer and then it might be supposed that you have been acting as a spy for us so it is better that you should tell no one not even your uncle that is if you have not already mentioned it to him i have never told him the girl said he is a good man and very kind but he is very timid and afraid of getting into trouble if he asks me who you are and what you wanted i shall tell him that you are an english officer who was in prison that you always bought your fruit of me and said if you ever came to salamanca again you would find me out that will do very well now i will say good-bye nita if we remain here after the french have retreated i will come and see you again for there are so many english officers here that i would not be noticed but there may be a battle any day or marmont may fall back and we should follow him so that i may not get an opportunity again i hope you will come i do hope you will come i will bury all these things this evening in the ground in the kitchen after my uncle has gone to bed well good-bye nita i must be off now as i have a friend with me when you see garcia you can tell him that you have given me a kiss i'm sure he will not mind i should not care if he did the girl said saucily as she held up her face good-bye senor i shall always think of you and pray the virgin to watch over you after marmont fell back across the duro there was a pause in the operations and as the british army was quartered in and around salamanca the city soon swarmed with british soldiers and presented a scene exactly similar to that which it had worn when occupied by moore's army nearly four years before what fun it was terence ryan said will we frighten the place out of its very senses by the report that the french were entering the town that is all very well dick but i think that you and i were just as much frightened as the spaniards were when we saw how the thing had succeeded and that all our troops were called out there is no saying what they would have done to us had they found out who started the report the very least thing that would have happened would have been to be tried by court-martial and dismissed from the service and i am by no means sure that worse than that would not have befallen us yes it would have been an awful business if we had been found out still it was a game wasn't it what an awful funk they were in it was the funniest thing i ever saw things have changed since then terence and i'm afraid we have quite done with jokes of that sort i should hope so dick i think i can answer for myself but i am by no means sure as to you 
I like that, Ryan said indignantly. You were always the leader in mischief. I believe you would be now if you had a chance. I don't know, Terence replied a little more seriously than he had before spoken. I have been through a wonderful number of adventures since then, and I don't pretend that I have not enjoyed them in something of the same spirit in which we enjoyed the fun we used to have together. But you see, I have had an immense deal of responsibility. I have two thousand men under me, and though Bull and McWhitie are good men, so far as the carrying out of an order goes, they are still too much troopers, seldom make a suggestion, and never really discuss any plan I suggest, so that the responsibility of the lives of all these men really rests entirely upon my shoulders. It has been only when I have been separated from them, as when I was a prisoner, that I have been able to enjoy an adventure in the same sort of way that we used to do together. I little thought then, Terence, that in three years and a half, for that is about what it is, I should be a captain and you a major, for I don't count your Portuguese rank one way or the other. Of course, you have had two more years regimental work than I have had. It would have been much better for me if I have had a longer spell of it, too. Of course, I have been extraordinarily fortunate, and it has been very jolly, but I am sure it would have been better for me to have had more experience as a subaltern before all this began. Well, I cannot say I see it, Terence. At any rate, you have had a lot more regimental work than most officers, for you had to form your regiment, teach them discipline, and everything else, and I don't think that you would have done it so well if you had been ground down into the regular regimental pattern, and had come to think that powder and pipe clay were actual indispensables in turning out soldiers. The quiet time at Salamanca lasted a little over a fortnight, for in the beginning of July, Lord Wellington heard that, in obedience to King Yosa's reiterated orders, Marmont, having received reinforcements, was preparing to recross the Douro, that Soult was at the point of advancing into Portugal, and that the king himself, with a large army, was on the way to join Marmont. The latter, indeed, was not to have moved till the king joined him, but believing that his own army was ample for the purpose, and eager to gain a victory, unhampered by the king's presence, he suddenly crossed at Tordesillas, and it was only by his masterly movements and a sharp fight at Castile that Wellington succeeded in concentrating his army on the Equator. The British general drew up his army in order of battle on the heights of Velesa, but the position was a strong one. Marmont knew the country perfectly, and instead of advancing to the attack, he started at daybreak on the 20th, marched rapidly up the river, and crossed it before any opposition could be offered, and then marched for the Tormes. By this movement, he had turned Wellington's right flank, was as near Salamanca as were the British, and had it in his power, unless checked, to place himself on the road between Salamanca and Ciudad, and so to cut their line of retreat. Seeing his position thus turned, Wellington made a corresponding movement, and the two armies marched along lines of hills parallel with each other, the guns on both sides occasionally firing. All day long they were but a short distance apart, and at any moment the battle might have been brought on. But Wellington had no opportunity for fighting except at a disadvantage, and Marmont, having gained the object for which he had maneuvered, was well content to maintain his advantage. At nightfall, the British were on the heights of Quebeca and Aldea Rubia, and so secured their former position at San Cristobal. Marmont, however, had reached a point that gave him the command of the ford at Huerta, and had it in his power 
to cross the tormez when he pleased and either to recross a salamanca or to cut the road to ciudad he had proved too that his army could outmarch the british for although they had already made a march of some distance when the race began he had gained ground throughout the day in spite of the efforts of the british to keep abreast of him moreover marmont now had his junction with the king's army approaching from madrid securely established and could either wait for his arrival or give battle if he saw a favorable opportunity wellington's position was grave he had not only to consider his adversary's force but the whole course of the war which a disaster would imperil he had the safety of the whole peninsula to consider and a defeat would not only entail the loss of the advantage he had gained in spain but would probably decide the fate of portugal also he determined however to cover salamanca to the last moment in hopes that marmont may make some error that would afford him an opportunity of dealing a heavy blow the next morning the allies occupied their old position at san cristobal while the french took possession of alba whence the spaniards had been withdrawn without notice to wellington the evening before the british general had sent a dispatch to the spanish commander saying that he feared that he should be unable to hold his position the messenger was captured by the french cavalry and marmont believing that wellington was about to retreat and fearing that he might escape him determined to fight rather than wait for the arrival of the king the french crossed the tormez by the fords of huerta and alba the british by other fords across salamanca this movement was performed while a terrible storm raged many men and horses of the fifth dragoon guards were killed by the lightning while hundreds of the picketed horses broke their ropes and galloped wildly about the position of the british army in the morning was very similar to that occupied by a portion of it when besieging the forts of salamanca extending from the fort of santa marta to the heights near the village of arapiles this line covered salamanca but it was open to marmont to march round wellington's right and so cut his communications with ciudad during the night wellington heard that the french would be joined in the course of two days by twenty guns and two thousand cavalry and resolved to retire before these came up unless marmont afforded him some opportunity of fighting to advantage the latter however was too confident of victory to wait for the arrival of this reinforcement still less for that of the king and at daybreak he took possession of a village close to the british thereby showing that he was resolved to force on a battle near this were two detached hills called the arapiles or hermanitos they were steep and rugged as the french were seen approaching a portuguese regiment was sent to seize them and these gained the one nearest to them while the french took possession of the second the seventh division assaulted the height first and gained and captured half of it had wellington now wished to retire it would have been at once difficult and dangerous to attempt the movement his line was a long one and it would have been impossible to withdraw without running the risk of being attacked while in movement and driven back upon the tormez ignorant of marmont's precise intentions for the main body of the french army was almost hidden in the woods wellington could only wait until their plans were developed he therefore contented himself with placing the fourth division on a slope behind the village of arapiles which was held by the light companies of the guards the fifth and sixth divisions were massed behind the hill where a deep depression hid them from the sight of the enemy for some time things remained quiet except that the french and british batteries on the top of the two hermanitos 
kept up a duel with each other. During the pause, the French cavalry had again crossed the Tormez by one of the fords used in the night by the British, and had taken post at Adela de Jarda, thus placing themselves between the British army and the road to Ciudad. This movement, however, had been covered by the woods. About twelve o'clock, fearing that Wellington would assail the Hermanito held by him, Marmont brought up two divisions to that point, and stood ready to oppose an attack which Wellington, indeed, had been preparing, but had abandoned the idea, fearing that such a movement would draw the whole army into a battle on a disadvantageous line. The French marshal, however, fearing that Wellington would retreat by the Ciudad Road before he could place a sufficient force on that line to oppose the movement, sent General Macoon with two divisions, covered by fifty guns and supported by cavalry, to move along the southern ridge of the basin and menace that road, holding at hand six divisions in readiness to fall upon the village of Arapiles, should the British interfere with McCoon's movement. The British line had now pivoted round until its position extended from the Hermanito to near Aldela de Charda. In order to occupy the attention of the British and prevent them from moving, the French force attacked the village of Arapiles, and a fierce struggle took place. Had Marmont waited until Clausel's division, still behind, came up and occupied the ridge so as to connect the French main army with Marcoux's division, their position would have been unassailable. But the fear that Wellington might escape had overcome his prudence, and as Marcoux advanced, a great gap was left between his division and that of Marmont. As soon as Wellington perceived the mistake, he saw that his opportunity had come. Orders were dispatched in all directions, and suddenly the two divisions, hidden from the sight of the French behind the Hermanito, dashed down into the valley, where two other divisions joined them. The 4th and 5th were in front, with Bradford's Portuguese, and the 6th and 7th formed the second line, while the Spanish troops marched between them, and the 3rd division, forming the extreme right at Adela Tejada, the light divisions of Pax Portuguese, and the heavy cavalry remained in reserve, on high ground behind them. In spite of a storm of bullets from McCoon's guns, the leading divisions marched steadily forward, and while the third division dashed across the valley and climbing the ridge, barred his progress, the main line advanced to attack his flank. Marmont, seeing the terrible danger in which McCoon was involved, sent officer after officer to hasten up the troops from the forest, and with his center prepared to attack the English Hermanito, and to drive them from that position of the village they still held. But as he was hurrying to join McCoon, a shell exploded near him, hurling him to the ground with a broken arm and two deep wounds in his side. This misfortune was fatal for the French chances. Confusion ensued, and the movements of the troops were paralyzed. It was about five o'clock when the third division, under Pakenham, fell upon McCoon's leading division, and two batteries of artillery suddenly opened fire on their flank from the opposite height. Having no expectation of such a stroke, and believing that the British were ere this in full retreat along the Ciudad Road, the French were hurrying forward, lengthening out into a long, straggling line. The onslaught of Packenham's division was irresistible, supported as it was by guns and cavalry. Nevertheless, the French bore themselves gallantly, forming line as they marched forward, while their guns poured showers of grapes into the approaching infantry. Nothing, however, could stop them. Pressing forward, they broke the half-worn lines into fragments and drove them back in confusion upon the columns behind. The French cavalry endeavored to check the British advance by a charge on their flank, 
but were repulsed by the infantry, and the British light horsemen charged and drove them off the field. Pushing forward, Pakenham came under the second half of the division they had defeated, formed up on the wooded heights, one face being opposed to him and the other to the fifth division. Bradford's Portuguese and a mass of cavalry moving across the basin. The French had been already driven out of Arapiles and were engaged in action with the fourth division, but the battle was to some extent retreated, for Clausel's division had arrived from the forest and reinforced Marcoon and spread it across the basin, joining hands with the divisions near the French Hermenito. Marmont had been carried off the field, Bonnet, who had succeeded him, was disabled, and the chief command devolved on Clausel, a general of talent possessing great coolness and presence of mind. His dispositions were excellent, but his troops were broken up into lines, columns, and squares. A strong wind raised the sandy soil in clouds of dust. The sinking sun shone full in the faces of the troops, and at once concealed the movements of their enemies from them, and prevented them from acting with any unity. Suddenly, two heavy bodies of light and heavy cavalry broke from the cloud of dust and fell upon them. Twelve hundred Frenchmen were trampled down, and as cavalry rode on, the third division ran forward at the double, through the gap that they had formed. Line after line of the French infantry was broken and scattered, and five of their guns captured by one of the squadrons. Two thousand prisoners were taken, and the three divisions that McCoon had commanded were a mass of fugitives. In the meantime, a terrible battle was raging in the center. Here Clausel had gathered three fresh divisions, and behind these, the fugitives on the left rallied. He placed three others, supported by the whole of the cavalry, to cover the retreat, while yet another remained behind the French Hermanito. Pax Portuguese were advancing against it, and arrived nearly at the summit, when the French reserves left from the rocks and opened a tremendous fire on their front and left flank, and the Portuguese were driven down the hill with much loss. Almost at the same moment, one of the regiments of the 4th Division were suddenly charged by 1,200 French soldiers hidden behind a declivity and driven back with heavy loss. For a moment, it seemed that the fate of the battle might yet be changed, but Wellington had the strongest reserve. The 6th Division was brought up, and though the French fought obstinately, Clausel was obliged to abandon the Hermenito, and the army began to fall back, the movement being covered by their guns and the gallant charges of their cavalry. The whole of the British reserves were now brought into action and hotly pressed them, but for the most part maintaining their order, the French fell back into the woods and followed by the darkness, and nobly covered by Macoon, who had been strongly reinforced, they drew off with comparatively little loss, thanks to the Spaniards' abandonment of the fort guarding the fort at Alba. Believing the French must make for the fort at Huerta, Wellington had greatly strengthened his force on that side, and after a long march to the fort, was bitterly disappointed on arriving there at midnight to find that there was no sign of the enemy, although it was not until morning that he learned that they had passed unmolested over the fort of Alba. Had it not been for the Spanish disobedience and folly, Marmont's whole army would have had no resource but to surrender. Marmont's strength when the fight began was 42,000 infantry and cavalry and 74 guns. Wellington had 46,000 infantry and cavalry and 60 pieces but this included a considerable Spanish force and one of their batteries, the 100 Portuguese, who, however, could not be reckoned as good troops. The pursuit of the French was taken up hotly next morning, and they were chased for 40 miles that day. But the following morning, they eluded their pursuers, marched to Valladolid, 
drew off the garrison there, and left it to be occupied by the British the following day. The Minho Regiment had been, two days before the battle, attached to the 6th Division. For a time being in the 2nd line, they looked on, impatient spectators of the fight, but at the crisis of the battle they were brought up to check Clausel's impetuous counterattack, and nowhere was the struggle fiercer. Hulse's brigade, to which they were attached, bore more than its share of the fighting, and the 11th and the 61st together had but 160 men and officers left when the battle was over. The Portuguese fought valiantly, and the fact that their countrymen had been defeated in their attempt to capture the French Hermanito inspired them with a fierce determination to show that Portuguese troops could fight as well as their allies. They pushed forward well abreast of the other regiments of the brigade and suffered equally. In vain, the French attempted to check their advance. Showers of grapes swept their ranks, volleys of musketry at a distance of about a few yards, withered up their front lines, and for a time hand-to-hand -hand fight with bayonets raged. In the terrible roar of artillery and musketry, words of command were unheard, but the men mechanically filled up the gaps in their ranks, and the one thought of all was to press forward until at length the French yielded and fell sullenly back, disputing every yard of the ground, and a fresh division took out the pursuit. The order to halt was given. The men looked round, confused and dazed, as if waking from a dream, grind with powder, soaked with perspiration, breathless and haggard, many seemed scarcely able to keep their feet, and every limb trembled at the sudden cessation of the terrible strain. Then, as they looked round their ranks and to the ground they had passed over, now so thickly dotted with dark uniforms, hoarse sobs broke from them, and men who had gone unflinchingly through the terrible struggle burst into tears. The regiment had gone into action over two thousand strong. Scarce twelve hundred remained unwounded. Of the officers, Bull had fallen, desperately wounded. McWitty had been shot through the head. A shell had struck Terence's horse, and bursting, had carried off the rider's leg above the knee. The men near him uttered a simultaneous cry as he fell, and regardless of the fight, oblivious to the storm of shot and shell, had knelt beside him. Terence was perfectly sensible. Do one of you give me my flask out of my holster, he said, and another cut off the leg of my trousers, as high as you can above the wound. That's right. Now for the bandages. As every soldier in the regiment carried one in his hat, half a dozen of these were at once produced. Is it bleeding much? he asked. Not much, Colonel. That is fortunate. Now find a smooth round stone, laid on the inside of the leg just below where you have cut the trousers. Now put a bandage round and round as tightly as you can do it. That is right. Now take the ramrod of one of my pistols, put it through the bandage, and then twist it. You need not be afraid of hurting me. My leg is quite numbed at present. That is right. Put another bandage on, so as to hold the ramrod in its place. Now fetch a flannel shirt from my valise, fold it up so as to make a pad that will go over the wound, and bandage it there firmly. Give me another drink, for I feel faint. When all was done, he said, put my valise under my head and throw my cloak over me. Thank you. I should do very well now. Go forward and join the regiment. I'm done for this time, he thought to himself when the men left him. Still, I may pull through. There are many who have had a leg shot off and recovered. 
and there is no reason why I should not do so. There has not been any great loss of blood. I suppose that something has been smashed up so that it cannot bleed. Ah, here comes the doctor. The doctor was one of several medical students who had enlisted in the regiment, fighting and drilling with the rest, but when occasion offered acting as surgeons. I have just heard the news, Colonel. The regiment is heartbroken, but in their fury they went at the French facing them and scattered them like sheep. Canovas, who told me, said that you were not bleeding much, and that he and the others had bandaged you up according to your instructions. Let me see. It could not have been better, he said. He felt Terence's pulse. Wonderfully good, considering what a smash you have had. Your vitality must be marvelous, and unless your wound breaks out bleeding badly, I have every hope that you will get over it. Robas and Salinas will be here in a minute, with a stretcher for you, and we will get you to some quiet spot out of the line of fire. Almost immediately, four men came up with the stretcher, and by the surgeon's orders, carried Terence to a quiet spot, sheltered by a spur of the hill from the fire. There is nothing more you can do for me now, doctor? Nothing. It would be madness to take the bandages off at present. Then please, go back to the others. There must be numbers there who want your aid far more than I do. You can stay with me, Leon, but first go back to where my horse is lying, and bring here the saddle and the two blankets strapped behind it. I don't feel any pain to speak of, but it seems to me bitterly cold. The man presently returned with the saddle and blankets. Two others accompanied him. Both had been hit too seriously to continue with the regiment. Their wounds had been already bandaged. We thought that we should like to be near you, Colonel, if you do not mind. Not at all. First, do each of you take a sip at my flask. Leon, I wish you to find a few sticks and try to make a fire. It would be cheerful, although it might not give much warmth. It was dark now. It was five o'clock when the third division threw itself across McCoon's line of march, and the battle had begun. It was dark long before it ended, but during the three hours it had lasted, the French had lost a marshal, seven generals, and twelve thousand five hundred men and officers killed, wounded, or prisoners, while on the British side a field marshal, four generals, and nearly six thousand British officers and soldiers were killed or wounded. Indeed, the battle itself was concentrated into an hour's hard fighting, and a French officer describing it said that 40,000 men were defeated in 40 minutes. Presently, the din of battle died out, and as soon as it did so, Herrera and Ryan both hurried to the side of Terence. My dear Terence, Ryan said, dropping on his knees beside him, this is terrible. When I heard the news, I was almost beside myself. As to the men, terrible as their loss is, they talk of no one but you. I think I shall pull through all right, Ryan. At any rate, the doctor says he thinks I shall, and I think so myself. I am heartily glad that you and Herrera have gone through it all right. What are our losses? I don't know yet. We have not had time to count, but not far from half our number. McQuitty is killed, Bull desperately wounded. Fully half the company officers are killed. That is terrible indeed, Ryan. Poor fellows, poor fellows. Well, I should say, Herrera, that if you get no orders to join in the pursuit, you had best get all the wounded collected and brought here, and let the regiment light fires and bivouac. There is no chance of getting medical assistance outside the regiment tonight, of course. 
all the British surgeons will have their hands full with their own men. Still I suggest this, for of course you are now in command. The wounded had all fallen within a comparatively short distance, and many were able to walk in. The rest were carried, each in a blanket, with four men at the corners. Under Ryan's directions, the unwounded scattered over the hillside, and soon brought back a large supply of bushes and faggots. A number of fires were lighted, and the four surviving medical students, and one older surgeon, at once began the work of attending the wounded, taking the more serious cases first, leaving the less important ones to be bandaged by their comrades. Many wounded men from other regiments, attracted by the light of the fires, came up, and these two received what aid the Portuguese could give them. The next morning Terence was carried down at daybreak on a stretcher to Salamanca, where the town was in a state of the wildest excitement over the victory. As they entered the gates, an officer asked the bearers, Who is it? Colonel O'Connor, the Minho Regiment. The officer knew Terence personally. I am sorry indeed to see you here, O'Connor. Not very serious, I hope. A leg cut clean off above the knee with the fragment of a shell, Percival, but I fancy that I'm going to get over it. Carry him to the convent of St. Bernard, the officer said to the Portuguese captain who was in command of the party, which consisted of 400 men carrying 100 wounded. All officers are to be taken there, the others to the San Martin convent. I will look in and see you as soon as I can, O'Connor, and hope to find you going on well. But few wounded officers had as yet been brought in, and as soon as Terence was carried into a ward, two of the staff surgeons examined his wound. You're doing very well, Colonel, the senior officer said. You must have received good surgical attention immediately on being wounded. Judging by your pulse, you could have lost but little blood. It hardly bled at all, Doctor, and I had it bandaged up by two of my own men. I have seen a good many serious wounds in the course of the last four years, and know pretty well what ought to be done. It has been uncommonly well done, anyhow. I think we had better not disturb the bandages for a few days. If no bleeding sets in by that time, clots of blood will have formed, and you will be comparatively safe. Your pulse is very quiet. Your men must have carried you down very carefully. If I had been a basket of eggs, they could not have taken more care of me. I was scarcely conscious of any movement. Well, you have youth and good health and good spirits in your favor. If all our patients took things as cheerfully as you do, there would not be so many of them slipped through our hands. Bull, who had been brought in immediately after Terence, was next attended to. He was unconscious. He had been struck by a round shot in the shoulder, which had not only smashed the bone, but almost carried away the upper part of the arm. An ugly wound, the surgeon said to his colleague. At any rate, we may as well take off the arm while he is unconscious. It will save him a second shock, and we can better bandage the wound when it is removed. A low moan was the only sign that the wounded man had any consciousness that the operation was being performed. Will he get over it, doctor? Terence asked when the surgeon had finished. There is just a chance, but it is a faint one. Has he been a sober man? Very. I can answer for the last four years at any rate. All the Portuguese officers were abstemious men, and I think that both felt that it would not do for him commanding the battalion to be less sober than they were. That increases his chance. Men who drink 
have everything against them when they get a severe wound. But he has lost a great deal of blood, and the shock has, of course, been a terrible one. An orderly was told to administer a few spoonfuls of brandy and water, and the surgeon then moved on to the next bed. End of chapter 20 Recording by Charles Sapp